0: you, thank you. And thank you to everyone who's here. Thank you for our visitors. I see our newest church members have a visitor here with them this morning, but that's uh, Carly, their daughter Carly, uh, who, well, she's one and a half visitors with us, it looks like to me. (laughs) So we're glad to have you here, Carly. Grateful for your Visit and for everyone else, it's a regular. And if there's any other visitors here that I didn't see, we're we're grateful for you too. I'm I'm uh, well. I guess I'm trying to get in line with my message this morning. I'm thankful. (laughs) So we'll uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. Now I have dropped an envelope in this morning, designated for missions. So I planted the seed and got the missions fund going. I don't know if anybody else did or not, but we got it started. We want to keep it going. And as we announced last week, so we'd like to see you add in a little additional to that. We'll begin a fund for a, a missionary endeavor, a missionary outreach. And see if we can do that which is honorable and pleasing to the Lord in that area and proclaiming the gospel around the world. Uh let's see. Um, I think, I haven't exactly <clears throat> got approval for this yet, but somebody will, probably will be singing a special on Easter Sunday. It could be my wife, it could be Andy, it could be Danny over here, I don't know. <laughs> I just had that thought here, so I'm sticking my neck way out uh, when I'm offering up uh, something here maybe or maybe we'll get together and have a duet or a trio or something like that. Now Bob and I gave somewhat of a duet this morning. I don't know what what you want to call that, but um no. <laughs> Try somebody else. Try somebody else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. <laughs> Solo. Uh-huh. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. I hope, I know not everybody got to look at the web page that Jeff had developed. If you didn't, sorry that you were missed out on that. It looked real good to me. Did everybody else, everybody look at it? Think it looked okay? Good. Well, we'll do some work on it and try to get that presentable and able to put it online, and once we get of course part of it the, they're waiting on me they're waiting on me to write a welcome thing on for the page and some other information there, some text so uh, I've got to get that done and a new picture yeah <laughs> well, it's going to take a few shots to get something acceptable there <laughs> Of course, I'm glad they didn't sh- did they didn't sh- they didn't show you the other picture did they oh. Well, they took some other. He has some fancy program on there, and he took some picture. It showed you know you turn it just right, and it, it, you made your, your my ear was way out here, my nose was way down like this. I mean, it's pretty wild. We don't want to scare them off by any means. We're supposed to be a thing of attraction. Okay, First Peter chapter two. Well, actually, we're going to start reading in, 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 back in verse uh, or chapter one, and verse twenty three. It's where we'll read, and we'll read an extended passage here and then discuss these things regarding the church. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower uh, thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word of God. "...which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious." Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient... The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye also, or but ye are, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him. Who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now this is a lengthy passage, and of course we're not going to dwell in depth on the entire thing, but in order to get the context of where Peter is coming from, and of course, if we wanted to get the full context, we'd have to go right back to chapter one, verse one and begin reading. And if we wanted to even expand on that, we'd have to go back to the book of Acts and and catch Peter's uh, messages there and find out what message Peter was proclaiming. And then to get even Peter's fuller context, we'd have to go all the way back to the Gospels and get the message that Peter or that uh, Jesus proclaimed to Peter and the disciples and find out what it was that Jesus was teaching and proclaiming unto them. And then, of course, even to go farther beyond, to get the broader context of all the scriptures, we'd have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis and begin where God began in declaring the message that he has for us today. And this message that we've been talking about regarding the church uh, is a very, very important one. Now, in talking about being born again, of course, this comes far into the epistle. He's not talking about initial salvation as we normally think of it. When he talks about being born again. He's talking about those who have received the word of God. And if we were to go back and and look at, uh, well, particularly in the Gospels and the book of Acts. We see defined there for us what the word of God is. Even if you were to go just to start at Matthew chapter 13. Where he talks about the word of the kingdom and then several times later he and just in a few verses he shortens it and just refers to it as the word. And of course in a in a in a passage like that, we would just simply say, well, the context tells us what word he's talking about. You could have just as easily have said word of the kingdom in every one of those verses. And then to continue on through the gospels, uh, as they give an account of the Lord's message to his disciples and, and to the nation of Israel and so on, uh, we find that as from that point in time, then as you move into the book of Acts, the disciples, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, continued on with the same message. And we find it referred to in various ways there. The word of God, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ. Uh, we find it called uh, the preaching of the kingdom and of Jesus Christ, and various other uh, phrases that denote what he's speaking of. So when he comes here, even in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he talks about that which we have received and being born again by the word of God is no different than the word of God spoken back in Matthew chapter 13 where it's called the word of the kingdom. Being born again by the incorruptible word, by the word of God, is the message of the kingdom. And having received that message and believed that which Christ proclaimed and that which Peter is here proclaiming. And so he says that this word of God, he says, which liveth and abideth forever. Or more literally, it lives and abides unto the age. Well, that tells us again, that gives us another little clue as to what the content of this word of God is. It's the word of God that abides unto the age. It's the word of the kingdom that abides unto the age. And then in verse 24, quoting from the Old Testament here, that all flesh is as grass and so on, the grass withers and falls away. But in verse 25 he says, but the word of the Lord endures forever the word of the lord endures unto the age the point being here is this message of the word of the lord is that which moves us to the next age unto the age to come that tells us something about the content then of the word of the lord or the word of god back in uh, verse 23 it is the word of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed to his own disciples, including Peter, back in Matthew chapter 13. And everywhere else in, in the Gospels, by the way. But just simply because it's named there. And so he says then, and this is the word. This is the word which by the Gospel, the good news, is proclaimed to you or preached to you. Now, in view of that then, Having received this word, this word of the kingdom, and having been born again by it, he says, wherefore? You see, there's a response to that. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and so forth, he says in verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, or... We might say this word sincere. Some your newer translation would probably have the word pure. The pure milk of the word, that which is unadulterated or untainted with anything else. It is simply the pure word of God, and you go to the pure word of God to grow. That's what you grow from. This word, uh, this phrase here, the milk of the word. The word there is the word for word the greek word for word is our where we get the word logos and it's an ad, actually an adjective it's describing the pure milk that is the and some would render this the pure spiritual milk of the word in other words the point is is you're going beyond you're moving into the pure spiritual milk and of course there are other translations based on certain Greek manuscripts that would add the words, grow unto salvation. And as far as I'm concerned, that fits the context perfectly. It's the kind of salvation that we grow into, that we attain unto. It has to do with the maturity and the purpose of a Christian and moving beyond. And, of course, having received This particular message that Peter is speaking of here, this word of the kingdom, this good news that he spoke of, mandates, it necessitates that we grow. It is the only way that that message can ever be of any profit or value or benefit to any of us is if we grow from it. And so the idea then is to grow, if so be, he says, that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious or kind. Uh, or good and then in light of all that then we come to where where we want to land here for this morning uh, in in verses four and five and so on he says to whom coming as unto a living stone and of course that living stone being the lord jesus christ here he's identified with an inanimate object a stone and yet he's said to be living And that gives us the idea, as we've talked about earlier, the church being compared to a building having a foundation and the apostles laying the foundation, Christ being the cornerstone of that building. The cornerstone, we said, was the the, the stone which set the dimensions for all the rest of the building, the angle for it. If that angle was off even a little bit, the whole building would be skewed and look pretty weird and strange. And we'd call that pretty poor architecture. But quite frankly, we have here the perfect stone, the one with perfect angles. And we build off of that cornerstone, the apostles being then being the foundation. We are built up, therefore, on the foundation of, of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ then being the cornerstone. Consequently, he says... We then are called living stones. But he says also, not only was Jesus this living stone, but it says disallowed of men. It was rejected. You know, you had to go through a certain number of stones to get the right one that was perfect. And they rejected Christ. But here he says, chosen of God and precious. This stone, which was rejected of men, was the very one chosen of God. And he says it was precious. Or it's a word that means highly prized or honored, this stone. But then you also, as living stones, we who are connected to Christ, as we saw earlier in the metaphor of the body, being a part of the church, a descriptive metaphor of the church, the body... All jointly, fitly framed together, connected together, he says, are living stones. Built up a spiritual house. And this is the true nature of the church. This is the true nature of the ecclesia. And again, having nothing to do with the building. I know that in in Russia, as amongst the Baptist believers at least it is common to refer to the church not as a church building but as the prayer house. So they say they've built a new prayer house or we're going to have a meeting at the prayer house in order to somewhat get away from the idea of relating church to the idea of the building. But the church has to do with the spiritual house, that house which is being built by Jesus Christ himself. Not only is he the chief cornerstone, but he's the architect. He's the builder of the house. And he says it's a spiritual house and holy priesthood. And this is one of the things I want us to dwell on here, as to see that in this house it is a holy priesthood. Each living stone is a priest, a believer priest. And then we also noted down in verse, uh, in verse 9 where he said, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So just the idea there that we are a priesthood. Now, let's look back to Exodus chapter 19. You thought that we would just not look around today, huh? Surprise, surprise. Exodus chapter 19. And there we're going to make a... A comparison somewhat between the nation of Israel and the church. Now, in Exodus 19 and verses 5 and 6, he says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, of course, he was telling Moses this, and Moses relayed relayed this message to the people of Israel. In verse 7, Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So you see that Moses acted as an intermediary. He, was a, he mediated between God and the people. Well, that's what a priest does. Now, within the nation of Israel, though, they had priests appointed. Priests appointed by God who were to come before him on a regular basis Mediating between himself and the people of the nation. So just keep that thought in mind. But notice now in this covenant that they made here, I want us also to notice in in verse uh, 5 that it's a conditional covenant. It was conditioned upon their obedience. He said, If ye will obey my voice. See, this is something uh, different and subsequent to the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. That covenant which God made with Abraham, which he, uh, he instituted, is unconditional. It's going to be carried out. It will be fulfilled by God because he initiated it, and he will keep his part of the bargain, no matter what man does. But in this particular instance, God made a covenant with the people of Israel, with the nation, And he told them, if ye will obey my voice, then these things will happen. And that's what he was speaking of in regards to the priesthood. Now, there was only one nation then that had priests. Only one nation that mediated between the nation and God. But you notice there also that the Lord says, all the earth is mine. That Israel was simply a representative nation before God, and they were to mediate between God and all the nations of the earth, the Gentiles. Now, of course, we know that they utterly failed in that regard, ultimately, but that was their responsibility. Now, um, back in 1 Peter chapter 9, or chapter 2 now, 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, maybe we should. Let's not do that yet. Change my mind. Let's go to Matthew. You should be a little bit closer by now. Let's go to Matthew chapter twenty-one. Because having said that, let's let's deal with this passage here, where God brings this conditional covenant to an end. Because in Matthew chapter twenty-one, you have, of course, the nation has rebelled against their, their Messiah. We saw that being brought to fruition uh, in Matthew chapter 12. Here the finality of it is occurring and taking place in chapter 21, and it's expressed in a parable, this parable, the vineyard, beginning in in verse 28. Now, we don't have time to read all of that, so we're just going to skip ahead to verse, uh, verse 43. So that's in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43 There Jesus finally and ultimately told them, Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now as we look over to, of course that ultimately became the Gentiles. That that became the gospel as we saw it in the book of Acts, uh, particularly through the ministry of Peter, which was given, uh, who opened the door, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and then ultimately taken up by the Apostle Paul. So Peter, even though he opened the door and had the keys, as it were, in opening the gospel to the Gentiles, he actually was the, gen- the apostle to the Jews, Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles. And so in doing so, this nation that would be brought forth was going to be brought forth in the Gentiles. Now... Having said all that, look at Romans 10, Romans chapter 10 and verse 19. And this will give us a, a little fuller idea, I think, of um, this what Paul's talking about here and what Peter's speaking of regarding the nation. In Romans 10, um, of course, you know in this passage that Paul is is uh, remorseful over his people, Israel, who have rejected their Messiah, and so on. And down in verse 19, he says, But I say, did not Israel know? First, Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy, that is, Israel, by them that are no people, that would be the Gentiles, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Now there you have a comprehensive term in the singular, a foolish nation, to refer to all the Gentiles. And he said, by a foolish nation, I will anger you. Well, if you were to go back and and look at chapters 9 and 10, uh, particularly chapter 9 in Romans, you find that one of the purposes for which God brought forth the church, this new nation, was to bring his own people Israel to jealousy that they might return unto him. And they will one day. And that will happen. But now going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're bringing out this idea of this holy nation and the idea of the holy priesthood and the responsibilities of those who are now members of this spiritual house In other words, we're making the comparison between Israel as a nation and the priesthood under Israel and the responsibilities that the priesthood had to bring the sacrifices to the temple on behalf of the nation and the church, which is now a spiritual house made of living stones and a holy priesthood. With a responsibility, ultimately we're going to see here, to bring spiritual sacrifices. Now, having said all of that, in verse 9, you see that he talks about a royal priesthood. And that word for royal is the word basileos, where we get our word for kingdom. Basilea, or basilea, I should say, is the word where we get Uh, the Greek word for kingdom in the scriptures. And so you see the regality, the royalty, connected with the kind of priesthood he's speaking of. Now, having said that, let's go back for a moment to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers and the 16th chapter, verse 5. Numbers 16, verse 5. And there we see something of the responsibilities that We see in the priest and the priesthood. Now this has to do with the rebellion of Korah and those associated with him. In verse 2 it says, They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel. In verse 3, they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. So do you see the parallel between those in the building of the church, the spiritual house, they're a holy priesthood, here in the congregation of Israel, all are holy. Every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then, lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face, and he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. And so we see three things laid out by Moses here that describe for us the person who is able to hold this office and to do what Moses and Aaron were doing as representative priests before the Lord. And the first thing is, he says there, the Lord will show who are his. You remember if you go back to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, it tells us there that the, he's in making a comparison again with uh, Jesus Christ as our high priest and the Levitical priesthood, that they were chosen by God. Here we find Moses saying the same thing. The Lord will show who are his. God does the choosing. God selects who will be the priest. Then he says also, and who is holy. That was one of the requirements. You had to be holy. And then lastly, he says, Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. The priest had to have the privilege to draw near unto God, to come close, to be in his presence. And, of course, there was a prescribed manner in which that was to happen before he could enter into even the the holiest and even then to the holy of holies to be drawn into the presence of God to mediate for the people. There was a prescribed manner. So we have, you know, he he gives us the condition for being a priest was that they were called, chosen, appointed of God. And then they had this certain qualification, holiness. And then lastly, he describes what their function was, to draw near unto God. Now, in making that application in the New Testament to the holy priesthood of the spiritual house in 1 Peter chapter 2, then we have a spiritual responsibility. We have spiritual sacrifices that we are to bring before the Lord. You know, even the you've seen the the Hebrew, uh, the Jewish name, I should say, in this respect, the Jewish name Cohen, C O H E N. That's the Hebrew word for a priest, and the very word itself, Cohen, means to mediate on the behalf of another. And that's what a priest does; he mediates or acts on behalf of someone else. Now, this royal priesthood, this kingly priesthood, as it were, it always when I think about that, it reminds me of I mentioned before the title of the book by Jody Dillo, called "The Reign of the Servant Kings," speaking of the nature of those who will serve the Lord Jesus Christ in His kingdom that they will be servant kings or king priests, as it were, serving him in his kingdom. That describes for us the kind of office, the kind of servant that the Lord is looking for. And so he calls them here, he calls those who are members of this spiritual house, a royal priesthood and an holy nation. So this Royal here, of course, obviously, um, is is an adjective. It's describing priesthoods. And even the Greek word here is an adjective. Basalia. And I don't know if I can pronounce that one right. Basalia is the word for kingdom. And this is basalios, I think is how you say it. Um, It's an adjective describing the priesthood. So it's a kingly priesthood. It has kingliness about it. And the whole idea here is is that it means the property belonging to a king. So if we talked about the royal treasures of the kingdom, then you'd be talking about the kingly treasures of the kingdom. We just have another word to describe it, the royal treasures. So it's a royal priesthood or a kingly priesthood. It is a priesthood, then, that belongs to Jesus Christ. And hopefully that would help you and I see then the necessity, the desire that the Lord has for those who would obey him, for those who would come to him in the prescribed manner, just as a priest would come before the Lord in the temple in the prescribed manner. Um, The Levitical priests, of course, one of their primary responsibilities in offering various kinds of sacrifices was to bring an animal sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of blood. It was a sacrifice for atonement, for the covering of sin. We have no such responsibility. Our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already offered that sacrifice, a once-and-for-all sacrifice, a sacrifice that is final and done. It's a one-time thing. And it 's finished it's no more to be done, however, we acting on his behalf as his royal priesthood, we do have sacrifices to offer now, one of those sacrifices in the new in, in the Old Testament that a priest or that well actually that an individual could bring, and of course the priest mediated it was a thank offering. a thank offering or what's called a peace offering was an offering brought purely. On a voluntary basis. In other words, just because of gratitude of heart for something the Lord had done, or just because they were thankful, they could bring an offering to the Lord, a peace offering or a thank offering, and there offer that to the Lord. Now, if we were to look at Hebrews chapter 13, then we find there the kind of offering. Of which we're speaking. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. He says there. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate forget not. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Well, this word for sacrifice it is no different than the word used for sacrifice of an animal. It means, literally, just like an animal, that you bring something and you offer it up to God. So it's a temple term. And by the, and, and the, by the way, the, the um, hmm there's another one in here too, the, the well, the giving of thanks in, in verse 15. This thank offering is a temple term as well. In other words, the comparison between the temple, the nation of Israel, the office of priesthood has a comparison within, not a type. I don't think for at all that it's a type, but it's a comparison here between Israel because they're distinct. They're two separate things. If you want to make them a type, then you've allowed too much danger of the of doing away with Israel and saying now the church is the real Israel. And that's not true at all. So it's not a type. But it is a comparison. It is an illustration of, because, and we can do that because that's the very thing that Paul does. It's the very thing the writer of Hebrews does. It's what Peter does. They give us an illustration between the temple and the priesthood of the Old Testament and the spiritual house. That Jesus Christ himself is building and the responsibilities that you and I have in this house as priests. Holy priests. Now we're to give spiritual sacrifices. Let's turn back to a well-known passage that will give us the whole idea of what he's talking about here then. Romans chapter... Where would you go? There you go, Romans chapter twelve. This is not a class, but I'd let you speak out. I wanted you to Romans chapter twelve and verse one. and there he says, and boy this whole this whole phrase here these of these two this these two verses, one and two, speaks so eloquently of that which takes place in a sacrifice, and of course, he uses the very term, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, in presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, this whole idea is opposed to a death. As you had an animal sacrifice in the temple, that animal was slain. And it was dead. But you and I are to be living sacrifices. We are to present our bodies. In other words, think this through. You are to, remember we said the word sacrifice is a temple term. It means just the same, they use the same word as if they offered up an animal for a sacrifice to be put to death. So we are to think of ourselves as offering ourselves wholly and completely up to God just as the priest offered that animal up to God in totality, in which it gave its life. The difference is then, you and I are freed to leave and live as a living sacrifice for God. A living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. And we have an Old Testament picture of that in Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was offered up as a sacrifice. You had all the elements there, the wood, the whole works for the sacrifice. And he was even bound and placed on the altar. I mean, he went to the nth degree. And that pictures for us the degree to which you and I are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice for our God. A living sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't give ourselves partially to the Lord. We don't give just a little bit of our lives to the Lord. We don't hold back certain things that we want to keep and say, well, I'll serve the Lord this way or I'll serve the Lord in this manner, but I do want to keep for myself a certain few privileges or maybe even just one. If it is one, it's too much. It is a sacrifice of totality, just as it was for Isaac. And yet, God provided for Isaac. Isaac was unbound and released to go forth as a living sacrifice. And that's you and I today. We are to be a living sacrifice. And so there should be then a point in time in which we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Now, of course, this going forth as a living sacrifice now is a continual. That's present tense. There's a point in time, aorist, in which we are to give ourselves as a sacrifice. Then, as we walk away and leave in service to Jesus Christ, we are to be continually then a living sacrifice, an ongoing sacrifice, day by day by day. Now, I don't suppose it's going to do good to keep your finger there. We will come back to this a little later. Um, This living sacrifice. So, back in Hebrews chapter 13 now. What is then, he says, by him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise. And we noted that that sacrifice of praise would be compared to a thank offering as it was given back uh, in the Old Testament. A thank offering uh, that was given voluntarily simply by an act of the will. It was a choice on the part of the individual to come to the Lord. In other words, it wasn't something prescribed in the law. That's the difference. There were certain other offerings prescribed that they had no choice in. If they were going to be pleasing to God, if they were going to do God's will, then they had to bring the offering at the prescribed time or in the prescribed manner. This offering came freely of their own will, out of the depths of their own heart. So when he says what is, uh, when he talks about offering the sacrifice of praise to God, again, it's continually. It's, it is an ongoing thing. And this, it's interesting here, I think at least, this giving of Thanks. Because I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. And chapter 1. 1 John. And chapter 1. And if you would, look at the most familiar verse in all that chapter. So you should know what that is. That's verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, it's interesting to me that this word giving thanks, the Greek word, is found in this verse right here. And it's the word confess. If we confess, it's that word homo legeo, which means to say the same thing or to say the same word, to speak the same word. And in, in this context, we render it giving the giving of thanks. We give the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips. Giving thanks. Confessing to his name. Saying the same thing to his name. So it's a verbal thing. It's an expression of our heart. But it's done verbally. It means to... Literally, to speak or to confess His name. You know, to confess His name means that I claim Jesus Christ. I claim to be one of His disciples. I own up to the gospel which He preached. I hold to that. So therefore, I confess His name. Or, as we find this expression many, many other times in the New Testament, I call upon His name. Consequently, when you come to Romans chapter 10, that is not an, a, a salvation verse that we would give to someone who has never known Christ before. To call upon the Lord is the privilege and the responsibility of a believer. I call upon the name. I confess the name. I claim that name of Jesus Christ, and He belongs to me. So the then look. There's an interesting one too. I, I, I came across one time back in the book of Hosea. You got Daniel, and then you got Hosea chapter 14. And, and uh, if you if you've got a King James and you didn't you didn't know, or if you didn't have a study Bible like I have, I never, I don't know if I ever would have come across this. In Hosea chapter 14, verse two. At verse 1, he says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Of course, we know at this point in time, uh, Israel was far from God. They were about to go into captivity. And Hosea, in speaking to them through the course of the Lord as his prophet, says, Return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously so will we render the calves of our lips. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know whether you think about the calf of your leg or, or a little baby calf out here, the calf of our lips. What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you remember, a calf would have been a sacrifice. And it's the idea behind this is a sacrifice. You, we will render the sacrifice of our lips. In other words, in order to repent... And turn back to the Lord. He said, "Take with you words." He tells them there, "Turn to the Lord. Take with you words, and turn to the Lord, and say unto Him." So you speak to the Lord. You confess. You bring the sacrifice of your lips. Now, what did the Lord when uh, in uh, back in Psalm fifty-one when when after David had sinned and he was confessing before the Lord his sin? What did David say there in the 51st Psalm regarding a sacrifice? He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. He said in verse 16, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. You see, it wasn't the idea of utmost importance in the mind and heart of God was not that he would bring an animal for sacrifice, but he wanted David's heart. And David understood that. I think that's why the scriptures say that David was a man after God's own heart, because David's heart was after God. And he understood the idea of a broken and a contrite heart. That's what Hosea is appealing to here a broken and a contrite heart and if i wouldn't have turned away there back in hosea if you if you have your finger if you don't i'll just read it back there in hosea in hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 we see the same kind of an idea it says there for i desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of god more than burnt offering and you see that what was primary in the heart and mind of god Was not the burnt offering so much that they were bringing, but the heart of the individual. Mercy on the part of that individual. So when he's talking about the sacrifice of our lips, when he's talking about the sacrifice of praise and the giving of thanks, he's talking about that which emanates. It begins with the heart. It is not done in rigid, strict, external obedience to a written command. It is an outpouring of our heart towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not to say that it doesn't have outward expression because he tells us so in verse 16. Ah, now we're back at Hebrews now. Back to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. And there he says, But, but, to do good and to communicate, forget not. Don't forget these things. For with such, well there it is again, sacrifices, God is well pleased. If you want God to be well pleased with you, if you want God to be well pleased with your life, then we need to take note of what pleases Him. And two of the things that are mentioned here that are very pleasing to the Lord is to do good. Good. This, whole, this word good is interesting. There are several words translated good in, in Greek. This word means something to do something good, to do something beautiful. You've seen people, you've heard the expression, somebody does something good and they said, oh, that was a beautiful thing. Well, that's the, that's the kind of idea behind this word for good here. It means something which is fair, beautiful, good in that sense. They did a good Not just because it was right, but because it had this air of goodness about it. And so to do good in that sense would be pleasing to the Lord. It's the idea of beneficence. To do something that benefits another. Not necessarily something, you know, not necessarily doing good because it benefits me but doing good to the benefit of another. Um, and back in Hebrews, we're, we're in chapter 13. In my Bible, we have to turn back to verse 9. So if you look at chapter 13, verse 9, there it says, um, Be not carried about with uh, divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Well, that's the same word for good there. Is a good, is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing that the heart be established with grace. And so we see even beginning with verse 9, as Paul, or well, I don't know if it's Paul that wrote this or not, as the writer of Hebrews expresses this whole idea of sacrifices of praise, you see that he set the tone of the heart as the basis for which this is to be done. It's to come out of the heart. And then he also says, and to communicate. Or to share. It's our common word we know for koinonia, meaning fellowship. That which we all have in common with one another, we're to share in. Now we have fellowship here on a spiritual basis. The church is called to be in fellowship because we have a commonness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a common faith. And so we have a koinonia in that sense of the word. But there can be another sense of the word also. A sharing of one's material goods. A sharing of that which we have in common with someone who is lacking in that particular area. So when he talks about to do good and to communicate, he says, don't forget these things. Because with these, God is well pleased. Don't forget people who have need. Now, I don't know why the Lord brings You know certain people into your life but uh, God's given me one of those kind of people and he has all kinds of problems and he calls me sometimes he'll call me four and five and six times a day another time he may go three or four months and I'll never hear from him and then boom all of a sudden I hear from him again and I go take him someplace I've got some of his stuff stored in my garage right now Uh, I've given him money time and again to help him out. You know, it's one of those, if you were in the flesh, you'd feel like you just want to turn and walk away from and just forget this mess. You know, you get tired of it. But God gives you those kind of people, I think, to test your faith, to see what you will do. And I've tried and tried and tried for years now. This has been a long time to minister to this individual, and I continue to do so trusting that what I do will be well-pleasing to the Lord. That's what we want. That's what we ought to desire, those things that are well-pleasing unto Him. Now, turn back to, um, well, let's skip that. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12. I said we'd go back there. In Romans chapter 12, in those, that passage there, In, in the second verse, and of course he's, he talks about this living sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And there the idea, that word acceptable, same word. That you may prove what is that good and and well-pleasing thing. The perfect will of God. In other words, that which is acceptable to Him. You know something? Not everything that we think is a sacrifice to God is acceptable to Him. It isn't well-pleasing to Him because we have the wrong heart. We have the wrong attitude. The wrong spirit. We've done it out of a Pure coldness because we know we have to do it because the Bible says so. That's not the kind of thing that God's well pleased with. You do it out of a heart of compassion, of warmth, of desire to be pleasing unto him. Um, let me just, well, there's several others we could look at. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9. We'll quit with this one. I think in in light of the context of this one, this passage, this ought to drive the point home to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. He says there, Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. We may be well-pleasing of him. But why do we do that? Well, we we need to read verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, it's in the context of the judgment seat of Christ that Paul says we do these things that we might be found well-pleasing unto the Lord. And we want to stand before the Lord and be found accepted of him. We want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, the way we do that is to do those things that are well-pleasing to him. To offer the kinds of sacrifices that are well-pleasing to him. And we said all that in The context, we began this whole discussion with the idea of the church. That we, as members of the church, as living stones, are called a priesthood. A priest has the responsibility of offering sacrifices. Sacrifices which mediate or benefit someone else, not just the priest. And so we are to be about doing those kinds of things that are what we would call... Beneficence. Now the words escape me. What do we call the fund? You often have a fund in churches. Oh, it's escaping me now. Huh? Benevolence. That's the word I wanted. I wanted to say a beneficent fund. I can't get the word to come out right. A benevolent fund. Why? Because it's to benefit others. It's not for us individually. It's not for us collectively as a church. It is for the benefit of others. So we have a benevolent fund. Benevolence means you do that which benefits the other person. And those things, he says, are well-pleasing to God. Those are things that we can do. Those are things not just that we can do, that we, but we must do if we want to be found well-pleasing unto him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you that we have the name of Jesus Christ upon which to call and that we may claim him. And I pray, Father, that as we do, that we would claim him with our hearts and that we would fall before you in full devotion and that we would offer ourselves completely as a living sacrifice. May we do the will and the bidding of your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we'll stand and sing just one uh, one verse of a hymn of invitation. And if you have a desire, a need uh, to come this morning for whatever it may be, we want to invite you to do so freely of your own will, not of compulsion, only that which the Holy Spirit directs you to do. 257. Number 257. Red Book 257. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming this morning. Trust you'll have a, a good uh, day with your family.